with me in the Word of God to Nehemiah 13. I went back and forth on this in my mind. This is going to be a long sermon. Then it's a long reading, but you need to hear it all. Will you stand with me out of respect for the reading of the Word of God? <coughs> Nehemiah chapter 13. Here's the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant Word of the living God. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And there was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should enter the assembly of God. Because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Now prior to this, Elishib the priest who was appointed of the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, the ties of grain, wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and contributions for the priests. But during all this time I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. And after some time, however, I asked leave from the king. And I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me. So I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who had performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials, and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? I gathered them together, and I restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, in charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Bediah of the Levites. In addition to them was Hananan, son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. It was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, O my God. Do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw in Judah some who were trading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing the sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. So they were brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living who were imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing you're doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same? So that your God brought on us and all this city all this trouble? Yet you're adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? It came about that this was just grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath. I commanded the door should be shut. They should not be open until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and the merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and I said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I'll use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also, remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, as for their children half spoken the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah but the language of his own people. So I contended with them, and I cursed them. I struck some of them, pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you've committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joeda, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sinbal the Horonite. So I drove him away from thee. Remember them, O oh my God, because they've defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I purified them. From everything foreign, 
and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his own task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Well, as you know, the Reformation had its share of slogans which were designed to capture the theological vision of the Reformation. And I trust uh, most of you here this morning could, could tick them off one by one because you learned them on your mama's knee. Sola Scriptura. Sola Gratia. Sola Christi. Uh, Soli Deo Gloria. And, and many more. They were ways of encapsulating uh, the theological heartbeat of the Reformation. But there's one that came online, and I have to be honest with you, it came online late in the 17th century in Holland during the so-called Dutch Second Reformation. And, and yet I think it's faithful and, and captures, again, the essence of, of what the Reformers were striving for. And it's, it's probably a phrase you've heard of before, Semper Reformanda. And it means uh, always reforming. And it's part of a, a larger Latin phrase, which means the church reformed must always be reformed. And so when we think about that phrase, we, we begin the word R, reformed. And, and we note that it should be a capital letter R, reformed. Because the reformed were about restoring the truth of Scripture to the church. And they argued that truth of Scripture that needed to be restored to the church uh, was uh, set forth in some reform and in the great ecumenical creeds of the ancient church and was also set, way, uh, set apart by way of summary in the historic Reformed confessions. And we know them, the Heidelberg Catechism, the, the Canons of Dort, the, the Belgic Confession, and the Westminster Standard. So to say that the Reformed church must always be reformed is the accent, first of all, that it's a true church. Our is capitalized, reformed, because reformed is biblical Christianity. But that being assumed, I, I want to argue that the real heart, or, or um, let's say that the punchline of the phrase is about the verb reform. It's a passive verb. And so in that sense, what the slogan is trying to say is that the church is, is, is a thing, it is an object, and it is to be acted on by an outside force, and that outside force is the Word of God under the power of the Spirit of God so that the practice of the church would be changed. You see, the phrase semper reformanda is really about God doing something necessary to his church in every generation. You see, the issue is about the practice of the church, not necessarily the doctrine of the church. Because if the doctrine of the church isn't right, there isn't a true church there anyway. The issue is that the true church that confesses the truth still needs reformation. In fact, it, it needs reformation in every generation in its practice. And the reason is simple. Because just as our personal sanctification is impartial and incomplete, so is the corporate sanctification of the church. And so the church in every generation needs to be reformed morally and spiritually. Well, Nehemiah 13 happens to be a, a great text which illustrates this truth. And it couldn't be more clear than the contrast between the last verse of chapter 12 verse 47, and, and all of the degradation that you read about in what follows in Nehemiah 13. Notice the picture of verse 47. All the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, they gave portions due to the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required and set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites. The Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron. And Contrast that, that still frame snapshot with verses 4 and 5 of chapter 13. Eliashib the priest, who was appointed for the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, prepared a large room for him where formerly they had put the grain offerings. You see, 1247 testifies to a state that's in good order. It's the people of God behaving like the people of God. 
And yet here now, as we come into chapter 13, well, it's, it's a wreck. The church is deformed. We have an Ammonite living in the temple precincts. We have Levites living in the fields. We have the tithes slowing to a trickle. We have the Sabbath being desecrated. And we have the citizens marrying foreign wives so that their children don't even know the language of Zion. The church was in need of reformation. It wasn't a reformation in doctrine. They already had the right doctrine. It was a reformation in practice. Nehemiah 13 is the story of the church being reformed according to the word. Nehemiah takes up that reform with a holy zeal, as Dr. Kidner says. If the first visit was a whirlwind, the second was a fire and an earthquake. You see, he had to purify the impurities and shake down the corruption in order to prepare the way for reformation in his generation. And so he took up his calling as a reformer with zeal. With the law of God in one hand and the zeal of Christ in the other. And he set about to reform the church according to the word. That's what we're going to think about today. Semper Reformunda. Two parts. We'll spend almost the entire time on the priorities of reformation. We'll skim over procedures of the Reformation, if you'll permit and bear with me, because there's something there to be gleaned, and then we'll tie it all up as fast as we can to remind ourselves what this great book of Nehemiah is about, which is really that someone greater than Nehemiah needs to come, and that's Jesus. So let's think about the priorities of the Reformation, and there's three main priorities that are spelled out here. Because we read the text, maybe we can move just a little bit faster at certain points, but... Uh, the first part of Reformation is the church. The first priority of Reformation is the church, and that part, priority of Reformation is the purity of the church and the ministry of the church. Let's think through both of those. And we take up the, the purity of the church. In order to get to the message about the purity of the church, we have to think about the impurity of the church. And, and you know, the impurity of the church is, is palpable. It's easy to see. It begins with an impure priest named Eliashib. I don't think he was the high priest at the time. Uh, it just says he's the priest, and I'll take the text at its word. He's some sort of priest named Eliashib. And the problem with Eliashib is he's not a faithful priest. We're told here that he's appointed over the chambers of the house of God, the very chambers which chapter 12, verse 47, testifies were being filled faithfully by the people of God, and, and there was oversight of it, and they were being administered as the, uh, the portions that were due to the, the Levites and the priests. But, but instead of continuing that in his generation, what he decided to do was to clear out the chamber rooms and give them to an Ammonite man named Tobiah. Well, why did he do it? Well, because he was related to him. That's what the text says. He was related to Tobiah. He was related to him by marriage. He was related to him by friendship. Because if we drop down to verse 28, we'll notice that... Um, one of this Eliashib family members, the son of Joida, uh, was uh, married to, to uh, Sanballat the Horonite, which was uh, his uh, evil best twin. So we have Tobiah and we have Sanballat. And as you know from the whole story of, of the book of Nehemiah, these were uh, a part of the triumvirate of evil. We were trying to oppose Nehemiah and to make sure that the church remained in a state of corruption. In fact, the very first thing that we read about Tobiah and Sinbalit is that as they saw Nehemiah come into Jerusalem with his royal retinue and the banners of King Artaxerxes preceding him, they looked upon it and they says they were very displeased that someone was coming to help Jerusalem. These are the enemies of Jesus Christ. Even though Tobiah has a name which means the Lord is good, which suggests he's some sort of a, a nominal convert or some nominal relationship to the church, but he's no friend of Jesus. Let's make that clear. Tobiah is a scoundrel. And as we read in earlier chapters, Tobiah was the one that was sending out uh, death threat constantly uh, to Nehemiah. But, but Tobiah also was... Um, he was an inside player because we learn from Nehemiah chapter 6 
that all the while Nehemiah was setting about to, to have these walls rebuilt, that um, the, the nobility and the establishment in Jerusalem were sending and receiving letters from Tobiah. So this guy is a conniver, he's a deceiver, and yet he's a part of the establishment somehow, due to money and the business. And, and so the, the thing about it that makes it all so striking is, and I think this is why it's included here, uh, verses 1 through 3 feel a little disjointed from the rest of the text, don't they? Because verses 1 through 3 sort of feel like, hey, everything's going good. They're reading the law. They read about the Ammonite and Moabite who shouldn't enter into the assembly. and They exclude all the foreigners. And yet you read from verse 4 to the end of the chapter, they're doing just the opposite. So it could be that it represents a, a, a rear view look or it's some sort of way to prepare for what follows. But, but the reality is that Tobiah being an Ammonite is not allowed in the assembly of the Lord. So, so tell me this, how does Eliashib the priest clear out the chambers which were designed for the tithes and offerings to sustain the ministry of Christ in Jerusalem and have that instead as his apartment in town? when an Ammonite is not even supposed to approach the assembly of the Lord. By, by hearing all of this, what you discern very quickly is that this is all bad. That there is great impurity in the practice of the church. Nothing's right. A leading priest is tied by marriage and friendship to the enemies of the church. An Ammonite has an apartment in the temple and the tithes are not being brought in. The church is in need of reform. So what does Nehemiah do? And one of the things I want us to notice, there's a timeline set up here in verse 6, which says, but, by way of contrast to the picture you've just seen in verses 4 through 5 about Tobiah and so forth. But during this time, I was not in Jerusalem. So what this tells us, and he goes on to say in the 32nd year of um, King Artaxerxes of Babylon, he went back. We know from historical records, we can pinpoint all of this from the time he, he came to Jerusalem and what the 32nd year was, but that he was there in Jerusalem for about 12 years, from 445 to about 433, and then and he left. And uh, he says, at this time I was not in. And then later in verse 6, you see, I asked leave from the king. No one knows exactly how long that is, but most scholars speculate it was about 20 years. So fast forward in your mind from... From, let's say, uh, from, from 433 to, to 413. The, the picture that you see here in, in Nehemiah 13 is 20 years after verse 47 of chapter 12. Now, I don't know what I ate for breakfast on Friday morning. I sure as heck don't remember what I ate for breakfast 20 years ago on Friday morning. You follow, I say that for a reason. The passage of time meant that the memory of Nehemiah's service and ministry in Jerusalem had sort of slipped from the forefront of the mind, which is typical in life. And what we have here is a church that seems to have forgotten its ways. And so Nehemiah comes back to restore the purity of the church here. And uh, he asked for a leave of the king. And, and the beginning of the restoration process is as simple as it was the first time he came to town. Look at verse 7. I came to Jerusalem and I learned about the evil. You remember when Nehemiah came to town the first time? He, he didn't ask anybody any questions. He, he just came. In the middle of the night, he got up and he saddled his horse. And he, he rode around the city in order that he could take in the burnt down and ruined rubble walls. That's what he does here. I learned. In other words, he went and he started inspecting. He took his own, he took a notepad out and he started just with shock noticing what was going wrong. And the rest of our chapter reads as, um, as just an unfolding list uh, of the, the infractions, if you will, that he saw. He learned. He realized what was going on. And I want you to notice what he says about what he saw. It was evil. That's what the word means, wicked. So he diagnoses what he sees as, 
is gross immorality, as corruption, as moral and spiritual evil. And the thing about it that stands out so sharply when you read those words is, why in the world didn't anyone else in Jerusalem say that? Was it, was it that the leadership of Jerusalem so lacked moral clarity on account of the permission of sin, they couldn't discern it? Or had everybody in town lost a sense of conviction of the truth and a duty to stand for it? Well, I don't know, but neither is good. When, when the church can't discern because it lacks moral clarity, or when the church has no courage of conviction so it's spineless, it both equally bad. Because that's the church that Satan will sift. So he diagnoses the problem. That's the beginning place of all reformation. Everybody was too afraid of Tobiah and his ilk, or they were too involved with him business-wise. They were all morally compromised. And so what does he do? Well, you can hear the, the china breaking on the cement floors here. Check this out. Verse 8. It was very displeasing to me. By the way, you know what that word means? It's the same word for evil that's in verse 7. It was very evil. Not just evil. He says, I saw this as very evil. So what does he do? I threw all Tobias' household good out of the room. He didn't go get a hand truck and stack all his furniture and then cart it out in a box with a name on it, Tobias stuff. No, he picked it up. And the verb here means to, to hurl, to throw with force and even violence. He picked up the china and he started smashing it outside the wall of the room on the floor so that everyone in Jerusalem could hear. There's a reformer in town and evil is being confronted. He makes a stink about it. But he didn't just diagnose and he didn't just break some dishes. He actually restored. Notice the rest of this. He cleared out the room, and then verse 9, I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms. Note the plural there, rooms. So it wasn't just one room. It was many rooms. And they all need to be cleansed, which means uh, moral reform. They, had, they were all impure because of this Ammonite who was forbidden to be there. So they had to do a lot of fumigation. Being just clean, he replaced Return there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. So notice what he did here. He cleared it out and he put back in its place what was supposed to be there. He restored the purpose of the church to its God-given function. That's Semper Reformata. I remind you this morning, people of God, what the Westminster Standards say in chapter 25, verse 4 as it speaks about the visible church, and it says within the visible church, there are, church, there are churches that are more or less pure. And it goes on to explain what that more or less purity is about, as it talks about when the gospel is taught and embraced, the ordinances are administered, and the public worship is performed. And all of those are about the practice of the church. Does the church today have worship? Of course it does. Does the church today have ordinances? Yes, it does. Does the church today have gospel? Yes, it does. But the question is about the, the, uh, the faithfulness of it. Remember, the Belgian Confession talks about the marks of the true church, and it says there are three. The proper preaching of the word, the proper administration of the sacraments, and Christian discipline. But the point of it is, it's not just that it has those things, but is it doing it according to the word of God? See, that's the issue. Is it doing it according to the word of God? Is the practice right? Nehemiah is able to evaluate it. They had the right doctrine, but they had all the wrong practice. That's the calling of the church today. That's even the calling of each individual believer according to their own station ability in the church. When we see the impurity of the church, one of the things that Nehemiah's actions tells us here is that we are to act. We're not entitled to tolerate. We're called to act according to our station and according to our ability and with the word. 
Nehemiah's actions show us we're called to restore the purity of the church according to the word. The other thing that is um, the priority of the Reformation here when we deal with the church, we, we showed the, the purity, a commitment to the purity of the church and a commitment to the ministry of the church. Notice here, it, it flows very naturally from, from verse 10 and following. Nehemiah acted to sustain the ministry with proper order. Look at verse 10. I discovered the portions of the Levites had not been given them. So the Levites and the singers who had formed the service gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them and I restored them to their posts. Here's uh, the language of action in a different way. We, we heard the China breaking before and now we hear verbal reprimand and confrontation. That word uh, reprimand means to quarrel with rancor, with hostility. And who did he do that to? The magistrates. Because it's their job to countenance the church and to make sure that things are being done according to good order and that it's provided for. I know we don't believe that today, do we? We believe in the good old separation of the church and state, don't we? And there's truth in that. There should be a separation. Jesus Christ is king and head of the church as well as king and head of the church over the nation. King and head of the nations. But... But there's to be a a working together with them. The magistrate does have a due interest in the church. Because the health of the land is inseparably tied to the health of the church. If the church isn't well, the nation will be well. But you see here, he took the officials aside and he read them the riot act because they were obligated to, to care for it. And then he went and gathered up all the Levites and the priests. Instead of doing their job as as ministers in the house of the Lord, what are they doing? They're farming. Why? Because no one's bringing in the tithes to support them. And so they have mouths to feed at home, and they went and worked the fields instead. You see, by gathering in, it says he put them in their post. What did he do? He committed himself um, to the reform of the church. He committed himself to reform of the church by reforming the ministry. You see, he made sure people were at their post whose calling it was to serve. Not anybody could do the work. It had to be Levites. It had to be people who were gifted and called and trained and raised up by Christ to do it. So he restores them to their post and then he reforms the ministry of the church by reforming its finances. Notice here, as you read verse 12, he says, Nehemiah learned the portions hadn't been given. The portion means what's assigned to them. In other words, their salary. Back in chapter 10, we, we notice how the people of God took a covenant and they swore that they would provide financially and they would not neglect the ministry. And in chapter 12, verse 47, we saw it all come to fruition. You see all of this happening just as it's written up. They were giving the portions which were due. You come into verse 10 and you see, I discovered the portions had not been given them. They were not bringing them the tithe. And the reason we're giving them the tithe is because an Ammonite was living in the storehouse. So Nehemiah rectified that, as you can see. How Judah brought the tithe, the grain, the wine, the oil in the storehouse, and in charge of the storehouse, Zion pointed Shelah. Uh, Shelemeh, the priest, Zedek, the scribe, and Padiah, the Levites, in addition to them, was Hanan, the son of Zechur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. So what he did is he saw the problem and he corrected it, and then to ensure its, uh, its perpetuity over time, he, he put people who were reliable in place. People of God, I've hit on this point frequently in the past few sermons, probably more than I've done in the last 10 years or even more. But that's because we preach the text here. We don't try to do hobby horse sermons. So if the text says it, I say it. Well, I can't help it. It's been in the text now. This is the third time it's in the text. I'm going to bring it up again. And the reason why I bring it up again is because the health of the church is inseparably connected to the health of the ministry in the church. And the health of the ministry of the church is inseparably connected to the support of the ministry. Period. 
And so I bring it up, the duty of giving to sustain the church financially. The reason why the priests and Levites were out in the field farming and, and picking apples is because no one was taking care of them, which was their calling. They had taken a vow, they had covenanted, swore an oath. They didn't do it. Every member here took a vow. Vow 5, you promised to give to the Lord's work as he shall prosper you. Don't elbow your neighbor, neighbor this morning. Just ask yourself, is that what you're doing? If there is to be a ministry in the church, there must be a provision for the ministry. If we don't want a ministry in the church, we shouldn't show up. We shouldn't take vows of membership because that ministry which we say we will submit to is a ministry that must be supported. You see, uh, if you want ministry, you have to live up to the obligation to support the ministry. It's a spiritual matter. The fact that the tithes were not coming in was indicative of something wrong in Israel. And we know what the something wrong was, that they had replaced the ministry that God had appointed his church with an unbeliever who stood with Antichrist. Tobiah moved into the temple of God. That's exactly what happens when the ministry is not sustained in the church. Unbelief and wickedness takes the place of the ministry. And when that happens, the church looks like it does in Nehemiah 13. Everybody doing their own thing. They lost the ministry because they didn't give. And that will happen in this church too. The ministry will be lost if the people don't give. It's as simple as that. The word of God makes that connection. I said in a previous sermon, I, I don't know what this church will look like. 30 years from now, but I have the greatest aspirations for it. But I can tell you this, there will be no ministry in this church 30 years from now if the church is not a giving church. So if you're not giving right now, you need to give. Because to not give is to say I haven't been blessed. And to say you haven't been blessed as a believer is a lie. God gives to everybody. And so... Reform of the church requires the financial sustaining of the church. Nehemiah shows us about Semper Reformanda, begins, it makes its priority the church, the life of the church, the worship of the church, the ministry of the church. The second priority of Reformation is the Sabbath. Boy, all kinds of uh, eggshells are being sta uh, stamped on here, right? Let's go. Dig in. Chapter, uh, verse 15. In those days, I... I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living who were imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. So what's the picture here? The picture here is of working during the harvest and engaging in commerce on the Sabbath day. By the way, working during the harvest is explicitly forbidden according to the law. Exodus 34, 21 says this, You shall work six days from the seventh day, you shall rest, even during plowing time and harvest. I, I, I don't need to read in between the lines to find a different message. It's pretty obvious here. You're not to tread the grapes, even if it's Sabbath day. Commerce, it's not spelled out in the law. The spirit of the law is expounded by the prophets, and they make it very clear that the commerce is not to be conducted on this day. It's a violation of the moral principle of the fourth commandment. And Nehemiah looks at all. He says, you're profaning it. That's what he says in verse 17. What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning it? By allowing the harvest to go forward, by allowing the commerce on the Lord's Day, or rather the Sabbath day, they were profaning it. They were profaning it. And I want you to know that Nehemiah took this very seriously as he went about to reform it. First of all, he reformed it with reprimand, verse 17. I reprimanded the nobles. In other words, he took the magistrates aside, the people who were enforced the law, and he says, um, I quarrel against you with hostility. That's the same verb as in verse 11. I'm angry. Verbal discipline. Then there's warning. Verse 18, didn't your fathers do the same thing so that your God brought on us and the city all this trouble? You're adding the wrath of God by profaning the Sabbath? 
He's giving them a history lesson. He says, don't you remember that little thing called the Babylonian captivity? Don't, don't you remember the walls here which were lying in ruin? Don't you remember the stories handed down from one generation to the next about how uh, your forefathers, your uncles and grandfathers were slaughtered at, at the sword of the Babylonian? It's all because you didn't obey God. You didn't remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You profaned it. God warned he would scatter them. He would draw the sword against them, make their land desolate. If they have failed to do that, it's Leviticus 26.33. And now Nehemiah says, you're adding wrath? Well, this feels very melodramatic, but it's really not because it's for the well-being of the people. And then he reinforced it with the civil law. Verse 19. Came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem for the Sabbath, I commanded the doors to be shut. They should not open them until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load would enter in on the Sabbath day. You see, the, the Sabbath breaking was planned. Part of the plan was to leave the gates open. And so what did Nehemiah do? He put teeth in his reformation by arming people with swords and saying, they'll come into this town on the Sabbath bearing their loads at the tip of a spear. And then he consecrated the people who were supposed to be leading by example, the Levites. He said to them, I commanded the Levites, they should purify yourselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also remember me, O oh my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. It's a priority. Why? Why is it a priority that he cared about the Sabbath day? Because if the Sabbath is not honored, the worship of God will go forward. If the Sabbath isn't honored, the worship of God will not go forward. In fact, the carelessness of worship, which was very obvious, we've seen it here. They, they, rented, they rented out apartments in the temple rather than filling the compartments with the tithes. So the ministry would go forward. It was gone. But um, this lack of keeping the Sabbath day showed why. They, they had no concern for the worship of God. And they had no concern for the worship that was appointed on the day. And so all this went hand in glove. Carelessness and worship went hand in glove with carelessness and Sabbath keeping. And so Matthew Henry has a great quote. Religion is never on the throne while Sabbaths are trodden underfoot. Religion is never on the throne when the Sabbaths are trodden underfoot. And what are the great obstacles to that? Recreation and commerce. Why? Because you and I are not strong enough. When the siren songs of recreation and commerce sing sweetly into our ears, we'll choose our flesh over Christ. Let's admit that. And so one reason why the reformers refused to permit recreation and commerce on the Lord's Day before worship, during worship, or between the services is because they had a healthy understanding of human nature. It's called total depravity. It's all over our creeds. Check it out. And in the Bible. Because this is constantly an obstacle. But we have to understand, people of God, if we lose the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath, we will lose the Christian faith. It, I, I, it's, you can see it no more plainly in that. and I mean that 1,000%. If we lose the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath, we will lose the Christian faith. And we will have no witness in our culture. Because God will be honored. He won't be mocked. You cannot ignore the Sabbath and the call to worship and to set aside the Lord's Day as a day for worship and keep the faith. That's just the way it goes. All of us took a vow about this. It's vow five. You can look it up after church today. So we can't be planning to make sure we're not here. We can't be planning to make sure we're not here. We're to honor the Lord by worshiping him. And the last time I checked, we have two services for worship. The first one is generally supported, and I can shoot a cannonball through the second and not hit anybody most of the time. And that's not to denigrate the people who stay for it. Is that honoring the Lord's thing? Is that the value you took? 
Is that what it means to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? At least I showed up. I'll let you answer the question for yourself, but I know all of us know that's not the answer. Our convenience isn't the most important thing. We're called to do something on the Lord's day, which is not unto ourselves. It is unto the Lord. That's why it's called the Lord's day. There's something we owe him. And this is so important to us because the life of the church, I say this about every point, but they all hold together. If we don't care about the life of the church and the purity of the church and the ministry of the church and the day the church is called to worship, guess what? There will not be a sound church. It's not an accident that the church is so weak today. We don't need to get a team of scholars out and do a statistical analysis of what. No, we already know what's wrong. We're not honoring our, our doctrine, our practice is wrong. Semper reformanda is necessary because in each generation we have to fight for our beliefs and the practice. I urge you to make your plans accordingly. Clear off your schedule for Jesus Christ. Family. That's the third thing. Family. Maintain the purity of marriage. This is disheartening to read. In verse 23, in those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. You know, it was just, uh, back in the 450s when Ezra came, the first thing he did is he saw the corrupt marriages and, well, he, he broke them apart. Whoever was married to somebody that wasn't a Jew, boom, they're out. Why? Because the law forbid it. But particularly here, Moab and Ammon are forbidden to approach the assembly of the Lord. To marry a Moabitess or an Ammonite is to plan to divide your house. That's simple. To marry them intentionally is to plan to sow the seeds of division in your home. And the reason why it sows the seeds of division in your home is because you cannot worship together. The family that doesn't worship together will never be together, or at least it'll never be a healthy, sound, strong family. So to intentionally marry these people was to intentionally make your home an unchristian home. Nehemiah came along later. He covenanted all these uh, these Jews in chapter ten, and they took. Oh, we'll never give our sons, or never, or never give our daughters, and we'll never take uh, their daughters for our sons. He said that. And twenty years later. He couldn't find a child. They could speak the language of Zion. You see, Nehemiah knew that the reform of marriage was essential to the reform of the church because the families are a part of the church. That explains why he did what he did. It sounds harsh to our American ears. Verse 25. I contended with them and I cursed them. And I struck some of them and I pulled out their hair and I made them swear by God. Okay, imagine he is the magistrate, by the way. He's not doing this as a pastor. He's the governor. He has the right to enforce the law. And to reprimand verbally is certainly well within his authority. Uh, So he rebukes them. That's right. He called down curse upon them. That feels kind of strong. Um... But the point of it is to say, if you refuse to obey the Lord in this matter, God is going to judge you. And I don't mind the magistrate saying that, by the way. Because it's saying that he cares enough for my soul and my life to warn me to turn away from sin. We're, we're so used to coddling and forgiving. And those are all wonderful things. We should forgive. and We should be empathetic. But... But the reality is sometimes we need somebody to say to us, if you do that, you're bringing curse upon your life. We don't have too much of that today, do we? But it's essential because sometimes we need to be afraid. We have the fear of God in our heart so that we turn from evil. Beatings, this is according to the law. Read this in view of Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 3, where the man who's found wicked in the court can be beaten, not more than 40 lashes. So what, what he does here is, is, is a, actually a physical punishment were prescribed for the civil magistrate of the Old Testament. Imagine if we had public whippings today, how things would change. I don't remember this. Um, telling my age here, it was back in the 90s, some kid, American kid, got, um, 
got, got caught tagging and spray painting over in uh, Singapore. And you thought uh, heaven and earth came unglued because they whipped him publicly. But I'll guarantee you that kid never did that again. Believe me. Now, I'm not necessarily advocating for this one punishment. I'm saying it's according to the law, and that's what's there. Plucking, I'm not sure what it is, but in Ezra 9, verse 3, when, when Ezra found out about all the marriages, the intermarrying and foreign marriages, it said he pulled out his own hair. He didn't pull out somebody else. He pulled out his own. And it seems to have been some sort of public humiliation and shame. And so I think the pulling out of the hair or the beard was something like that. And then he made them swear an oath. And this is where he seeks to consolidate the Reformation. He says he made them swear, you will not give your sons and daughters. He didn't dissolve them. He just said, don't do it. And then he gave them a warning. Verse 26, Solomon did this. You remember him? He had, let's see, 700 wives and 300 concubines. And oh yeah, they led him to sin. So let's take an example from the wisest man who ever lived. If he couldn't do it, you shouldn't do it. The wisest man that ever lived couldn't get, through, couldn't, couldn't get away with it. So then let's not try it ourselves. That's what he's saying. So he warned. And then verse 28, this is quite interesting. Even one of the sons of Joedah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, uh, he was son-in-law of Sanballat the Hornite, which means he had married Sanballat Hornite's daughter. And notice what he did to him. I drove him away. You know what it says literally? I ran at him. And the sense is that uh, poor old Joyda never stopped running. <laughs> he never came back. He was exiled from the sea. He was exiled from the people of God. And the reason the penalty was so harsh was because Nehemiah says, if in the highest places in the spiritual uh, oversight structure of, of, this, of this church, we permit this, what do you expect is going to happen with the rest of the people of God when they see that kind of an example? And so Nehemiah made him an example. He ran him out of town. What's the point of all this? It says marriage is a priority. The reformation of the family is a priority of the reforming of the church. Weak families, weak church. And that's all expressed here in verse 24. And note that's so heartbreaking. You can almost not read it without crying. As for their children, half spoke the language of Ashdod, and none of them, was able to speak the language of Judah. This isn't a surprise. What does a child learn every who does a child learn everything from? Their mama. They learn everything from their mama. But guess what? If mama's from Ammon or Moab or Ashdod, she doesn't speak um, she doesn't speak the Westminster standards. So what do you have here? You have this whole generation of children who are so spiritually vulnerable because they can't even begin to articulate the faith with their words. This has probably happened in your families. It's happened in mine. My children were able to recite the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed from memory by the time they were two or three just by listening to it in church. Imagine these kids couldn't, even if they were ever taken to church, they couldn't make any sense out of anything. See, his concern for the family is, his concern for marriage is a concern for the family. The, 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 the generations will not perpetuate the covenant if one generation can't even tell you what it's about. The concern here is so obviously a catechetical, and we, we remember that that what God said about Abraham, I've chosen him so that he will teach his family and his household the way of the Lord so that I will bring upon him everything I promised. God has appointed the means to perpetuate the faith in our homes. It's by dad and mom teaching the faith. These mixed marriages couldn't do that. And a heartbreaking situation occurred where the children couldn't speak or even learn the catechism. It was spiritual suicide. Lose the family, lose the church. Lose the family, 
lose the church. If there's no spiritual health in the marriage, there's no spiritual health in the family. That's God's way. If you're married this morning, guard your marriage. There's nothing more spiritual you can commit yourself to than guarding your marriage. There's nothing more godly you can do than being a good wife, a godly wife or a godly husband. If you want yourself to be built up spiritually and to abound in Christ, it begins here. The most practical thing to do is to care for your marriage. Husbands, love your wives. Cherish them. Bless them. Protect them. Pray for them. Oh yeah, it also says sacrifice for them. Wives, submit to your husbands. Give them honor. In fact, the word says, respect them. Parents, train up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, doing so, cling the promise of God that he made to Abraham. Do it so that I will bring upon him everything I have spoken about him. The reformation of the family is essential to the health and life of the church. There's no escaping it. And so, well, I speak to myself as I speak to you. We have to hold the family and keep it sound in Christ. Nehemiah was clear-eyed for that. And he honored the Lord. And he helped that whole nation, that generation, turn their hearts to Christ. That's the priorities of the Reformation, the church, the Sabbath, and the whole. How about... The procedures, that was the priorities. We have the procedures. And I, I said I'm just going to highlight because we've already read the text and we've seen them. But, but maybe I can just tie some things together here and connect some, some dots just for a minute. There's, there's just three things I want you to notice here. Discipline. Uh, Nehemiah pursued negative discipline and positive discipline. I think we got the negative discipline, right? Uh, breaking the china, reprimanding, uh, posting armed guards, uh, yeah, pulling, pulling hair, public beatings. All this was what? This is negative discipline. Uh, what it was was to say that we had to put teeth into the reforms. We had to make sure that we didn't just wordsmith the right statements on paper and call it reformation. No, we had to implement it. We had to get rid of things that were wrong. And then positively, he pursued positive discipline. He didn't just... Um, react, he acted. So when he found out that the priests weren't being provided for because the chambers were being, were being used as an apartment, he throws Tobias stuff out, he purifies the chambers, and then he makes room for the ties to come in, and then he points people over the top of it who'll do their job. When he finds out the Sabbath's being broken, he goes to the officials and he says, this is your fault. I hold you accountable. Post the guard and arm him. He talks about the family. He says there's something needs to be done. We're not going to tell you to put away your foreign wives, but here's what you're going to do. You're going to take an oath to never do this in your own families again, and you're going to teach your little children. You're going to teach Johnny and Susie uh, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Get started. See, what he does here is, is it's positive discipline. It's both. This is how the church is reformed. Second of all, the procedure for reformation is to uphold the authority of the word of God. It's to uphold the authority of the word of God. And that brings me back to the first three verses here. And this, for, uh, what feels like a little disconnect or disjointedness. They read aloud from the law and they did the right thing. Well, what that does is it sets the tone for the chapter. In other words, it, it, it starts paving the road up front of Nehemiah. Here's how Reformation will unfold. It will unfold according to the law of God. And Nehemiah, as he comes into town and he takes notes and observes everything that's going on, he's got a roadmap for Reformation. Why? Because he's read the Word of God. You see, and that's what he's going to hold the people to. He's going to uphold the Word and the authority of Scripture. And that's precisely what, his, what he did. He's a case study in Semper Reformanda because what he did was he took the word and reformed the church with it. Remember, the church is passive. It is reformed by the Spirit working through the word. The way for the church to, to be reformed today is to be reformed by the word. And the last thing here is prayer. And I wish I could have spent a whole sermon just on his prayers. 
maybe I will one of these days. But I wonder if you notice this. There are four sections to chapter 13. And you say, well, how do you know there's four, uh, four sections, Pastor Sato? Because each section ends with him praying. Verse 14, remember me for this, oh my God. Do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I performed the house of God in its services. Verse 22, for this also remember me, oh my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Verse 29, remember them, oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And the very last word of Nehemiah 13, by the way, these are the last words of Old Testament scripture. Keep that in mind. I know that Nehemiah is placed somewhere in your Bible that doesn't reflect that, but Nehemiah is the last word from God in the Old Testament. That's prayer. It is a prayer. Remember me. Oh my God. Why does that matter? Because the fourfold record of Nehemiah's prayers indicates the church is not reformed by a cookie cutter. Y'all know what I mean by that? My mom used to make Christmas tree cookies or whatever from the time of year out of these sugar cookie things out of dough. And there was a cookie cutter. You, you slammed it down over the dough and had the shape. You throw it down and you cook it. We can know what the Reformation is supposed to look like by seeing the priorities here. But the reality is a cookie cutter won't do it. Yes, we have to reform according to the word, but I want you to know the repetition of Nehemiah's prayers all throughout here tell us that it's when the church is on its knees praying as it implements reformation that Christ works. And that's what we need. It's not just following a, a, a set of lists and mix in this ingredient and that. No, it, it's a spiritual thing and it requires the power of the Spirit. Only God can give what he commands. And so prayer pleads for it. Prayer is required if we would reform the church. Nehemiah sought the reform of the church. He enforced discipline. He upheld the authority of the law. And he prayed. That's the procedure for reformation. This is a great chapter for us because it shows us what every generation of the church will confront. It may start well. It may start well like 1247. They're bringing in the dew. They're doing what was required. And then as Nehemiah went away from town, Satan slipped in. And the result of it all was that uh, sin ran wild. And this is what the church is always going to have to battle. And this is why we commit ourselves to Semper Reformanda. But let me just add this, people of God. That won't be enough. It's required. But what we must do above all is commit ourselves, not just to Semper Reformanda, but to Jesus Christ. I've told you repeatedly that Nehemiah 13 tells a terrible story about the weakness of the human flesh and the inability of even saved people to do the right thing. I've told you the way you find Jesus Christ in the book of Nehemiah, at least one way is to, to realize that its ending shows us that somebody better than Nehemiah is needed. And that needed person is Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And so here, 500 years before Jesus Christ, the last word of the Old Testament is, we need Christ. As much as we cherish the slogans of the Reformation, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola Christos, Sola Dea Gloria, even Semper Reformanda. We need another one. And if my Latin is correct, it's this. Semper Curet Ut Christum. Always running to Christ. You know why? Because as much as we commit ourselves to Semper Reformanda, we'll do a lot of failing Reformanda too. Because we're weak. And because we're sinners, and because, as our Bible reading warned us today, not be lagging in diligence, it will have that problem. So what it means is we commit ourselves to Semper Reformanda, as we commit ourselves to always running to Jesus Christ. If you feel like you failed this morning, that's okay, because you can take all of your failings and all of your sins 
all of your weakness, all of your corruption, all of your broken promises and empty words, and you could take them straight to the cross of Jesus Christ and know that he is going to cleanse you from all of your sin. And with that new strength, with that gratitude, what do you do? You take up your cross, you deny yourself, and you serve him.